Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross at Local 10 WPLG in Miami. And this is podcast number 11. I'm here along with Local 10 meteorologist Luke Doris. Luke, have a good week. Yeah, yeah. Things are starting to get cooking for us a little bit, so it's getting a little bit busy at work. A little uh, more interesting. We'll talk about that in just a second. And we're going to talk about Hurricane Katrina today on the 13th anniversary of the day Katrina made landfall on the Louisiana coast. That was August 29th, 2005. And in just a moment, we're going to have a voice that all you uh, weather watchers in South Florida are going to know very well. From New Orleans, David Bernard who is now the chief meteorologist at WVUE, the Fox Station in New Orleans, is going to be along with us here in just a moment to talk about Katrina, both here in South Florida and in New Orleans. Uh, He actually came to New Orleans, came to Miami from New Orleans just before Katrina uh, came through, developed in the Bahamas and and came through here. It, It was three and a half days before it became famous that it hit right on the Dade Broward line. In fact, more or less where we are here right yeah. now today. At the WPLG studios, Hallandale Beach is where it came ashore, correct? Right. Well, yeah. Right, yeah, right on the line between Hallandale and Aventura. But it would have come, the center of circulation would have come over the studios here if, if we had been here at the time, which, mm. um, which we weren't. We're recording this on Wednesday, August 29th, 2018. So if you're listening at some point in the future, you got to tune into uh, Local 10 or check the Max Tracker app or the Local 10 weather app, or local10.com for current information. This podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big. Visit miccosukee.com and discover the winner in you. All right, Luke, as you were saying, uh, there's kind of stuff happening out there. Not that, And we've been talking about it. We talked about it yesterday for the first time, this disturbance that's down kind of north of the uh, islands, north of Puerto Rico, down in that area. Mm. Uh, very ill-defined, hard to pick out, even on the satellite picture. You can't sure. really see it. Yeah, that's one of uh, two areas. There's that. There's another area off the west coast of Africa. And uh, just keeping an eye on both of them. And the National Hurricane Center just bumped the west coast of Africa, that little wave that's going to emerge, uh, up to a 50% chance of developing. And then the one that is uh, near the Lesser Antilles, that one, they don't have, the National Hurricane Center doesn't have anything on it yet. Though, if you look at the models, uh, watch it and see if it can get any organization over the next couple of, uh, really by Labor Day, as uh, it gets over the Bahamas. And then once it emerges past Florida into the Gulf of Mexico, what it will do there as well. Yeah, the Hurricane Center doesn't start putting little X's on their map until they think it's within five days of development. So mm-hmm. what that's telling you is that they're thinking it, that we're not in the five-day development window yet. Five days from today being Wednesday would be Monday, Labor Day. So that's their thinking at the current time. If you look at the European model, there is some chance of some tropical depression developing toward the end of that five-day period. The GFS says absolutely not. The upper-level winds are are terrible over the Bahamas and Florida for any development. Good for us, but uh, bad from a storm standpoint. So that's why they're not pulling the trigger, I think. So it's a wait-and-see kind of thing, stay-aware type of deal, right? Yeah, so we should be aware just because the European model has been consistent in showing it. It's not just one model run. It's been consistent in showing a disturbance uh, kind of kind of coming this way. Uh, Hurricane Lane is uh, is done with Hawaii. It's actually drying out in Hawaii now. That was uh, 
pretty spectacular, but we should mention the records mm-hmm. there, right? Because the, the fact that the rain on the Big Island, on the mountain on the Big Island, Mountain View, I think was the place, uh, came in second in terms of rainfall totals for tropical cyclones or hurricanes or, or uh, tropical storms is a little misleading because it really was in a few locations up on the mountain. It wasn't like in Harvey where you had widespread areas of three and four feet of rain and then this incredible five-plus feet of rain in a few areas where here we're talking about this super heavy rain of over four feet was on the mountain. Yeah, and what can happen is you get that upslope right over the mountains, and it right. it takes that moisture and just wrings it out, and that runs right down one side of the mountain. So while that one side got a hyper, you know, high rain total, the rest of the area wouldn't have even, you know, as, as far as the storm as a whole didn't produce near the rain or the water content that Harvey had produced, correct? Isn't that the takeaway? Right, right. The mountains enhanced the rain in that location where in Houston there are no mountains. It was all just an incredible uh, storm. So that's not to take anything away from what happened in Hawaii and sure. and people that were affected by that, but just just uh, the way numbers work out and the way stats work out, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't always uh, tell the whole story. Okay, so um, uh, one other thing to talk about, just to mention, I guess, is the MJO. We we talked about that with Mike Ventress a few weeks ago. The MJO being this kind of pulse that goes around the earth and can enhance. Uh, tropical activity, and it's been in a negative phase, in other words, in a suppression phase uh, over the Atlantic for pretty much this hurricane season. The thinking is that we might go into a more enhanced phase uh, here as we go into September. So the models are indicating that with more things spinning in the Atlantic overall, just looking from Florida to Africa and the Gulf uh, in the long-range models. Sure, yeah. Is is that just... Uh, to be expected this time of year, or is that a coincidence in that MJO um, propagating and kind of a, uh, I, I'm having a difficult time explaining it, but is it a coincidence, or would we expect that this time of year? Well, so uh, uh, it could be either. It, the fact is that the overall atmospheric and oceanographic system in September is at its peak in terms of the temperature of the water in general, generally the the jet stream has migrated far to the north, and and therefore the, the tropics are more favorable for development. The MJO comes around every month or, or month and a half or something like that, 40 days, uh, and uh, sometimes that lines up with part of September. Sometimes it lines up with all of September. It, it, it varies. So the, the MJO is enhanced by when you have thunderstorms and it gets a kind of a pulse going mm-hmm. well the thunderstorms have been in the with all those hurricanes in the eastern pacific well now they're tamping down and the, so the pulse is moving on to the east so there are many many factors and and um, we would need to get Mike Ventress back to yeah. <laughs> explain all the factors that have to do with what makes the MJO move but i've seen September's where half the month was very busy and half was not because we believe because the MJO positive pulse enhancing pulse happened to come along during that time. Okay, well let's uh, let's move on and let's move back to 13 years ago, 2005, and we'll bring in uh, David Bernard from WVUE in New Orleans. David, welcome to the podcast. Brian, nice to be speaking with you, and Luke, nice to virtually meet you today. 
Uh, David, um, so let's go back to that time before Katrina, before we'd ever heard of Katrina. We were having a busy hurricane season in 2005, and you came from New Orleans uh, to Miami. Uh, What were you thinking about that time in 2005? Brian, I'm glad you started with that question because every time I do one of these Katrina look-backs, different thoughts go through my head, and the one that just passed in the last few minutes was, how incredible not just 2005 was but 2004 was that was a defining year for the new orleans metro area because we had an evacuation disaster that year with hurricane ivan now ivan went to the east and missed new orleans but the evacuation was handled very poorly now within that year they corrected those problems so by the time we got to katrina we actually had a very orderly evacuation of the metro area we can get into what went wrong later of course with the people that weren't able to evacuate on their own but that was one impact that came out of 2004 and the other one i was thinking about uh, i moved to miami about four or five weeks before hurricane katrina so i missed it in new orleans so i was there covering it but not (laughs) as a local broadcaster and when i was driving to miami on that trip we had just had hurricane dennis a week before hit the panhandle and I'm driving through the panhandle and I see all the damage from hurricane Dennis. And then I wind around the panhandle and start driving down the peninsula. And I could still see a year later, the damage from Charlie to all the foliage along the way. So yeah, it and, literally and was Francis a, and Jean through central Florida, no doubt. Francis and Jean. So it was like this hurricane damage tour heading down to Miami. And I guess it was just a precursor of what was, Still to be seen that season. So you were still kind of getting organized when Katrina formed um, in the Bahamas, and we really—I don't remember being excited about it. You were there. Do you remember us being excited about, you know, the fact that this storm was forming? It seemed to me it, it all kind of happened so quickly. It, it happened, I think, within about forty-eight hours, and maybe it was a sixty-hour window, something like that, uh, and. I do remember you saying, uh, you know, we have to watch. These things can happen quickly close to the coastline, and indeed that's what happened. But Katrina in itself was kind of a bizarre storm for South Florida. I mean, we had the southwest turn that occurred, and we also had the phenomenon with that storm that the strongest quadrant, I believe, was in the southern part of the storm. That's where some of the biggest impacts were across the South Dade. Yeah, we had like nearly two feet of rain down in South Dade. And, and on the 836, they, there was, they were building this bridge at 97th Avenue. It was a, a pedestrian bridge, I think, across the expressway, and it blew down on the That's expressway right. because the strongest winds were actually south of the storm. So 2005... Well, that's the advisory that I rem- I was going to say that's the one advisory I remember from the Hurricane Center. They said Hurricane Katrina is currently located over the National Hurricane Center. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, when it turned, uh, that's at the FIU campus, obviously, in, in West Aid. And, uh, and it was not well forecast, by the way. It actually, in terms of the exact track, it actually was forecast to, do, to go west at that point, due west, and turn up into the Florida Panhandle. That was the forecast you know, at that time. And then it took... Uh, for all of us, an unexpected turn to the left and really uh, clobbered South Dave. Go ahead, Luke. So 2005, already by Katrina, had been an active year. So it wasn't just 
the number of storms, though it had a remarkable number of storms. It was the strength of the storms and how many strong storms that they had uh, in that season. So, David, what made 2005 such a remarkable year for all these powerful storms, and was that predicted? I don't recall what the predictions were for that season. We certainly were in the hyperactive period, and I think there was a call for an above-normal season, but uh, never were you going to see a forecast for, what did we end up with? 28 20, storms. How many? 28, uh, 28 storms. I mean, I talked about Hurricane Dennis that hit the panhandle uh, in July of 2005. The week before that, we had Hurricane Cindy, and that was one of the first hurricanes to passed nearly directly over the city of New Orleans since 1947. It was a it was a Category 1 with 75-mile-per-hour winds. It caused the greatest power outage in New Orleans since Hurricane Betsy in 1965. And I call that the forgotten hurricane, but that was quite an impact for the city. Yeah, at, and New Orleans has obviously a significant uh, history of hurricanes. It is interesting, isn't it, how we remember uh, some things we don't others. Dennis was quite a storm in the Florida panhandle, and it's really been lost in, in what all else happened uh, later in 2005. All right, so here comes uh, Katrina. It moves over South Florida. We, we have uh, damage, but obviously not catastrophic damage. The big issue was the flooding in South Dade that, uh, that you talked about. And now it's Friday night, and at 11 o'clock that night, the cone is aiming at New Orleans. And they were forecasting a 130-mile-an-hour hurricane to uh, come ashore in southeast Louisiana. It turned out to be actually a pretty good forecast uh, the way it worked out, although Hurricane Center never uh, talked about it blowing up to a Category 5 in the meantime that scared us all to death. So what do you remember about that, that lead-up? Because you no doubt were still in touch with your friends and, and uh, colleagues uh, in New Orleans once that cone swung from the Florida panhandle over to Louisiana. Well, I remember that night very, very vividly, Brian. Uh, you and I had finished on the air, and uh, I went back to my apartment, and I didn't sleep the entire night. Uh, and, in fact, I started calling people at around 4 in the morning in New Orleans, Saturday morning, uh, and telling them that uh, this is the storm that we have feared, that this is not a joke, that this is one uh, that you have to be prepared to leave today. And that was really the first time, uh, going back to the 90s, since I'd been covering storms there, that I thought, you know what, this is a real threat to the metro area. This is one where everybody is in danger, uh, whether you're inside the hurricane risk reduction system or certainly uh, for folks that did not have flood protection. And I remember uh, many of my friends, they actually took it seriously because they'd never heard me speak like that before, Remarkably, though, uh, some of them, typically their parents, uh, more elderly folks, they were more difficult uh, to convince to actually leave. So, David, let's tell me a little bit about the city and how prepared it was for a hurricane or a major hurricane, what the confidence was in the levee system, the pump system. Um, I mean, you're below sea level. It just it seems very, very vulnerable, which we found out, of course, that it is. Um, what was it, what were the confidence in in people? I know a lot of people evacuated, but for those that remained, how did they feel about the potential of this storm heading their way? Well, let's go back and look at a little bit of the history of the hurricane and flood protection uh, in New Orleans. And the scenes that you saw in Katrina 
had actually been repeated before. There were similar scenes, uh, not on as wide a spread basis as Katrina, uh, but areas like that you've heard of the Ninth Ward, St. Bernard Parish. Uh, these areas were all flooded during Hurricane Betsy in 1965. And one of the strongest storms uh, before Katrina to directly go over the city, uh, Category 3, in 1947, uh, caused flooding quite similar to what we saw in Katrina, although a lot of that was in Jefferson Parish, which is the largest suburb of New Orleans, and it wasn't that populated at the time. But uh, after Betsy in 1965, the federal government came in and they said, you know, we've got to do something here. And that's what led to the construction of the modern-day hurricane protection system uh, and levees. And I was reminded a few years ago of an interview that I did in 2004 at the beginning of the hurricane center season for a local publication. And one of the questions is, well, what's your biggest fear? And my answer was quite simple. We've never put this system to the test. And ironically, uh, that did get put to the test a year later, and we found out uh, it didn't work. And it was flawed from an engineering standpoint, and there were a lot of uh, man-made moves with some waterways that probably increased the vulnerability uh, to parts of the metro area. So that's what's been redesigned, reinforced uh, over the last 13 years by the federal government. Over $16 billion has been invested in southeast Louisiana uh, to enhance uh, the hurricane uh, risk system. So, all right, let's talk about the state of affairs, uh, where we stand now in, in just a minute. But going back now to August 29th, uh, 2005, it was a Monday morning. Uh, I was supposed to be in New York that, that uh, morning doing the CBS This Morning, CBS Early Show it was called then, with Bryant Gumbel and, and uh, Jane Clayson were the uh, hosts of the show. And I had called them over the weekend and said, uh, there's this hurricane. I, I can't uh, go to New York, but I'll do it from Miami, which I had done it on a number of occasions. And that morning, uh, you were there in the office, uh, I know, and uh, the morning show was going on. And we were in, in very early. Uh, I guess we must have come in at, at 5 or 6 in the morning that morning, David. Is that right? Yeah, it was definitely that early because, well, we're going to get to this, but the initial flash flood warnings issued by the National Weather Service were, I believe, around 7 in the morning. Uh, well, yeah. Well, Eastern time, I think it was about 8-something in the morning, but 7-something uh, right. uh, Central time, yeah. So, in any case, I'm doing these morning cut-ins. They had allocated 45 seconds to the weather cut-ins <laughs> to, 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 to do that morning. And suddenly, uh, the news from the New Orleans... National Weather Service office of this flash flood warning came in, and David was sitting in the back of the weather office and said, flash flood warning. And he had been monitoring WWL radio, which is the main news radio station uh, in New Orleans. And suddenly the, the word came out that there was flash flooding in the lower Ninth Ward. And then we came became aware uh, shortly thereafter, that there was an apparent levee failure, I think, David, if I recall. Do you remember how we how we learned about that? I'm trying to remember. I was monitoring WWL radio and WWL TV. Uh, we had them up as well. They had a satellite bureau in Baton Rouge at the time. Uh, and I'm trying to remember. I was kind of cross-referencing that. 
uh, with what the flash flood warning said. I believe the flash flood warning did specify that. Oh, maybe that's uh, that what it they was. Believed. In any case, right. I don't, uh, they may have said overtopping. I don't know if they knew at the time there was a breach. Well, I went on uh, uh, on CBS, I mean, literally two minutes after that came out and reported that this had happened. So somehow I had to have, have had confidence in it at, at that point. And in my little 45-second or 50-second weather cast, uh, I said – because I had said up to that point, so far, New Orleans has come through this, right? The storm has, had made landfall. The, there had been heavy rain. We were confident there was going to be terrible destruction in Mississippi. The big question was, how was New Orleans going to do? And I had said up to that point, so far, New Orleans had, had come through this. So I had to turn that around at that point on that 8.15-ish, I think, um, 8.10, 8.15, a.m. Yeah, weathercast and, and say that, uh, that, that uh, something really serious has happened in New Orleans. There's been a, a failure there, and uh, flash flooding is, is underway right now. now I don't want to leave you out there on your, lo- on your own, Brian. Um, I was making the same assessment. In fact, I have those video clips of us that morning doing the Hurricane Katrina coverage, and the reason um, that I thought, is, and you did as well, uh, that New Orleans was going to come out, quote-unquote, okay, uh, was because the center of the storm uh, was going to be passing just to the east of the city. And as you mentioned, putting the most destructive surge on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. I did say, though, that there was concern for St. Bernard Parish uh, and Plaquemines Parish, which is the parish just below New Orleans uh, along the coast, because they were going to take a tremendous wind from the east. And, and actually... A lot of the flooding in St. Bernard initially was from overtopping. Uh, so the overtopping of the levees is what was anticipated in a severe hurricane. What was not anticipated was the failure of all the flood barriers and walls, the actual collapse of them uh, in the New Orleans metro area. So because the hurricane passed to the east, the assumption was, well, the flood walls are fine, and the Lake Pontchartrain is not getting high enough to overtop those levees, so the city should be okay. Yeah, but what, the way it worked out is the wind drove the water from the Gulf and from Lake Pontchartrain down in the canals, the variety of canals on the east side and the north side, and that put pressure on the flood walls that weren't built right, and the flood walls failed. And and so I, I did this report on CBS, unbeknownst to the folks in New York, and I get a call immediately from the executive producer of the morning show, and he said, are you sure? I said, yes, I'm sure. It's from the National Weather Service, and we're monitoring WWL in New Orleans, and, and they, because of the way they were set up in New York on that CBS morning show, they were operating out of a different studio, not in the CBS newsroom. A different studio on Fifth Avenue at 59th Street, where the CBS newsroom is in the broadcast center at uh, 10th Avenue and 57th Street, or kind of on the, not on the other side of Manhattan, but a number of blocks separated. So they really didn't really have news gathering facilities in the broadcast center. And they had, uh, you know, gone with the assumption that New Orleans dodged the bullet and had, had that mindset. So it, it just took time for news to flow within the CBS News organization. So the, what was interesting was that once all that happened, uh, they still didn't really have the resources and the ability to pick up the story. And they went on with their regular morning show. They had some kind of fashion show going. But the news director 
at the TV station at the time said, said we're not going to run this, and switched CNN over to the TV station and bumped off the network uh, because CBS was, was slow to pick it up. So it was quite a bizarre and crazy uh, morning in, in broadcasting. And then, of course, uh, I don't think uh, we none of us could imagine what it actually meant. I mean, maybe you lived there for a long time, and maybe I'm sure you had thought about this, but could, it's a good question. Could Did you imagine it being as stunning as it was uh, when those flood walls failed, or that flood walls could fail on all these different sides of the city at the same time? No, Nobody had comprehended that happening. Again, the way we had imagined the disaster unfolding uh, would be a storm passing over the city or perhaps just to our west that would really maximize so much water in the Lake Bourne and Lake Pontchartrain that the flood walls and the levees that were built to maybe 18, 20, sometimes 22 feet would be overtopped by a greater surge and that would send water into the city. Uh, There had not been thought given to these flood walls not being able to handle such a swollen capacity and therefore collapse. I mean, I did opine a year earlier saying we never really have tested this system that was built in the 60s and how well is it designed. But in my head, I wasn't thinking, gee, were these engineered correctly? David, it's been 13 years, and I've seen a lot of pictures just trying to get back to what it looked like afterward. Can you paint a picture of the damage and devastation that Katrina brought? Well, I can start with when I was there for the four or five days after the storm, and I can remember going up and down Airline Highway, which is the old highway that people used before there was Interstate 10. That was under five, six, seven feet of water. Uh, I remember just seeing the hundreds and thousands of people that were stranded, stranded on overpasses and thinking, how was I just here four weeks ago, and this place is completely destroyed? Um, One of my other vivid memories was when I got down to the French Quarter one day, and it was empty. And I stood on Bourbon Street, and there wasn't one person on that street. And I thought, is this the first time in 300 years that no one else has been on the street but me? It was a very, very eerie feeling. And really, it stayed that way for many, many months after the storm. Um, it, It took almost a complete year to repopulate the city. Uh, On average, many people were gone for several months, some up to as much as six months, and as I mentioned, some even longer. And so when I would come back in the months after Katrina, it still felt like a ghost town in parts. It, It really was, I'd never seen anything like it. It has to be one of the great modern urban disasters, certainly in United States history, probably the worst one since the San Francisco fire and earthquake. I would argue. I don't know what you think about that, Brian, at the turn of the century. But uh, it really was surreal, not just right after the storm, but that following year as well. I can remember, for whatever reason, Geraldo Rivera's coverage where he kept saying the uh, graves are going to give up their bodies. And uh, just that was right before the storm were to hit. And then uh, the the uh, Superdome, too. I remember it taking, you know, they were showing the wind damage, which they're like, oh, it, didn't the roof, didn't, wasn't there a problem with the roof of the Superdome? Right. There was roof damage, but it was structurally, structurally not a problem. Structurally fine. Yeah. Okay, so 
this ended up being a landfall for Mississippi. We don't hear as much about Mississippi. Obviously, that was uh, they took much stronger winds as a Category 3 uh, hurricane there. What kind of winds did they experience in New Orleans? Well, the airport is on the west side of town, and I, if I'm trying to remember, but I don't think they had a gust higher than around 80 or 90 miles per hour at the airport. Now, on the east side of town, in New Orleans East, there were wind gusts over 100 miles per hour, but by and large, they had Category 1 winds. Kind of that's the way I would summarize it for the city of New Orleans. And so, you know, most things were intact. I mean, there was power lines down. There was roof damage uh, in places. But, you know, it's what you would expect from a strong tropical storm, a Category uh, 1 hurricane as far as wind damage goes. Uh, there were windows blown out downtown in uh, a couple of the high-rises, but by and large, that was the extent uh, of the wind damage because the storm, for two reasons, we were on the west side or, quote-unquote, slightly weaker side of the hurricane, and the hurricane was spinning down as it came uh, ashore. It had been a five a day earlier. It came ashore as a three, and, I mean, just from a physics standpoint, I think if you have a storm that's weakening on landfall that's maybe 120, 130 miles per hour, uh, that can have a weaker force and say one that's ramping up. I don't know if you agree with that, Brian, but that, that I think tends to be the case. So that's kind of the reasons why uh, you didn't see the widespread wind damage or severe wind damage uh, in the New Orleans area. But over Mississippi, you know, and again, it was a surge as well. I think it, uh, the, it was a record-breaking surge for the United States. I think it was at 27 and a half feet, something like that was the highest uh, water line measured. David, when I talk about the wind in New Orleans during Katrina, uh, I recommend to people search their memory banks for the helicopter shots that they saw of people on their roofs that needed to be rescued. Mm. If you remember, those roofs were intact. The shingles were on those roofs. Right. And those shingles were rated at 65 miles an hour. So the wind in New Orleans at the ground was not that strong. On the high-rise buildings, because it had been such a strong hurricane, the winds aloft were very strong. But uh, as, as Dave was saying, because the storm was coming apart, you tend to have the strongest winds in less of the circulation because we rate hurricanes by the strongest winds anywhere in the circulation. Could be in one cell that's rotating around, and the rest of the time the winds are a lot less than that. So as storms are unraveling, uh, I think that that's why that, that sense you have, David, is that they are... Um, defilling, so to speak. The strong winds are in less of the circulation, where when they're strengthening, the eye is filling in and you have the strong winds in, in more of the eye wall. So I think that's what was happening. But the fact was that it, it wasn't the wind uh, in New Orleans. It was the scope of the wind and the, the radius of the storm creating such a tremendous push like like taking your arm and pushing the water in the bathtub as opposed to taking your hand. Your arm moves a lot more water, even if it's not moving as fast. So that pushed that water from Lake Pontchartrain down into the city from the north and from the Gulf of Mexico in through what was called the Mr. Go Canal and an industrial canal uh, to the east. David, talk about when you were there covering the events after the storm, uh, what did you do for water and electricity and food and, and you know, the things that that uh, you have to have, even as a reporter? 
Well, I drove down there with uh, a couple of guys from the station in Miami, and we had brought some supplies for a couple of our other reporters that were there during the storm. And just getting into New Orleans, that was a harrowing experience in itself. And once we got down there, we teamed up with CBS News and basically kind of set up a camp in a parking lot uh, in Metairie, uh, which had not been inspected uh, by the flooding, at least this portion of Metairie had not. And a lot of other media were out there, and it was dry and relatively uh, not damaged. We set up tents out there, and we had a couple of RVs, and uh, we were eating stuff out of cans is all I basically remember. Uh, It was pretty bare bones there, and sleeping uh, in a tent, that's where I was, at least for uh, two or three nights. There was a hotel across the street, and uh, of course there was no water, no electricity. The hotel said, "Well, we'll give you, a, we'll charge you twenty dollars a night for room." And um, I remember thinking, "Well, you know, it's a mattress, so okay, I'll try that." And it was damp. I mean, the whole room was damp. The mattress was damp, uh, but nevertheless, it was better than the concrete. And so I spent the night there. And uh, But as far as the food, that's all I remember is sort of eating out of cans. Obviously, it was a blur over those four or five days. Uh, for me, it was just incredibly emotional. Uh, the people that I saw, the stories that I did, of course, people recognizing me, and the desperation that was on uh, people's faces. That, that was the hardest thing. I went back and watched some of those stories. Uh, about a week ago, there was a woman I'd known in the French Quarter who was a housekeeper at one of the hotels i would see her at my coffee shop every morning and she came up to me she didn't even know i'd moved to miami i had only been a month and she said she can't find her entire family her grandchildren or her children and uh fortunately i was able to hook up a wwl radio they were reading the names of people looking for other people over the radio and then by various means getting them in touch with whatever kind of uh communication they had or, or cell phones and uh that was really a difficult thing fortunately we did reunite this particular woman but it was just it was just an emotional roller coaster and one that really impacted me for the following year i had a number of people come live with me in miami uh, and stay with me that uh, had been flooded out in new orleans and of course you know the hurricane season wasn't over it just kept coming i really i i really had uh some depression uh for that following year and i guess you know, one person described it to me as, you know, you kind of have survivor's guilt because uh, here it was. Not only did I move to Miami and I got this great job, I sold my house and my house had four feet of water. So I would have lost everything that I had owned uh, if I had still been there. So the whole experience was surreal. It was very emotional. Uh, and it's one here that has defined this place forever. Whenever you talk to people now, everything is, oh, that was before Katrina. That was after Katrina, no matter what you're talking about. Everything now is in relation to that moment in time. So what have they learned for the next one? I mean, uh, what lessons do you think uh, they've taken away in New Orleans? Is the new levy system better? Are they better prepared for the next one? Do you still see some gaps that, like, hey, we got to plug this hole. This is, this is a soft spot. Uh, where do we stand today compared to 2005? You know, Luke, that's a really good question, and I know it's one that Brian's going to want to jump in on in just a minute. Like I mentioned before, we've got $16 billion in additional flood protection since 2005. This community from 
a physical standpoint, is better prepared and able to withstand a hurricane than ever before. The question, though, is to what extent? Again, until it's actually really tested, we're not going to know. But beyond that, you have to look at the psychology of things. And I do worry that there's elements in the population here and people maybe take some of this for granted or think, well, now we don't have to worry about a Category 1 or a Category 2 or maybe even a fast moving Category 3 because we've got these great big new fancy flood walls and storm surge barriers and uh, new pumps at the outfall canals and all this additional protection uh, that's been added. I mean, even with the passage of time, I've been able to see it. We're 13 years out now. Uh, people still forget whether by design or just by human nature. And so that's, I think, what the real threat is, is the complacency that can always come into play. And then there's just the whole question of our vulnerable population here, which was the problem in Katrina. You have a very large, poor population here that can't, quote, evacuate on their own. And our city-assisted evacuation program, which completely collapsed and was a total failure in Katrina, um, that now is in much better shape. And there's many nonprofit groups uh, that are here to assist should that situation arise again. But if you look past Katrina and you look what happened in Sandy and you look what happened in Irma last year in South Florida, if you look at Maria in Puerto Rico, I mean, how much more prepared are we, period, in this country for major disasters? I, I think the question is still out on that and, and what the answer is and how you get people to move and act. I know that's something that Brian has been beating his head about for decades now. Decades. <laughs> it's true. Uh, David, I was in uh, Gentilly, which is the uh, northern part of the city, low-lying part of the city. Um, a, I guess you'd call that a working-class area uh, in, uh, in the city of New Orleans. And um, you could still see today empty lots that, that where there were homes that uh, weren't rebuilt. But I remember talking to a gentleman there that had rebuilt his house and built it up high and and within sight of the flood wall. I mean, he was uh, couldn't have been more than 150 yards from this massive mm. flood wall right there. And you know, he said, "No, we're good now. We're we're good to go because we've got this this huge flood wall. There's nothing going to happen to these flood walls." I said, "But you know that that water, you get the right hurricane, the category 2 that's a big diameter category 2 and not moving too fast or Category three or above, and you know that water is is going to come over that flood wall. That flood wall may not fall, but that water is coming over the flood wall in an extreme storm. And you know, you, oh, yeah, but I think we're good. I think we're good. So I, that's uh, unfortunately you find that I, I think uh, David because that that flood uh, levy system, the flood risk reduction system, looks so formidable when you stand there and look at it compared to the flood walls that were there before. Don't you, don't you think that that's a, a, a psychological factor uh, that kind of works against Absolutely. getting people I mean, to move? Absolutely. I mean, it's something tangible. Yeah, it's something tangible. It's something that people can see and say, aha, see, we, we have that there. Um, and, you know, then there's these incredible pictures and videos that we run of uh, the Lake Bourne surge uh, barrier, which is one of the largest engineering projects in the history of the Army Corps of Engineers. It's almost a two-mile-long surge barrier 
that was built at Lake Bourne going into the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet. It's two miles long. It goes up 26 feet above sea level, and people see these things, and it probably does give a false sense of security. I mean, the reality, as I tell people, is that New Orleans, for all intents and purposes, we are an island. Um, you can look on maps, and it looks like there's New Orleans south of the lake, and then there's all this land uh, down to the Gulf of Mexico, 70 or 80 miles to the south. The reality is there's no land. And if you're ever flying into New Orleans and you're coming from the southeast, boy, once you get to the Mississippi River uh, at the base of it there in the Gulf of Mexico and you're flying in New Orleans, you don't really see a solid piece of land all the way to the city. And so we're an island, and we have water on all sides of us, and the bottom line is we're just extremely vulnerable uh, no matter what's done. Yeah, there's a lot of levees and a lot of water. That's that's all you really see south of New Orleans. Uh, David, before we let you go, uh, talk about yourself. What was the weather event that got you started into meteorology? Well, that's it. Well, I guess there's two quick answers on that. Uh, the first one was the first storm I ever tracked in 1977, Hurricane Anita in the Gulf of Mexico became a Category 5. I was growing up in Houston, Texas. My grandmother lived in Galveston. It became a Category 5, and then there was a huge blocking high over us, and the storm suddenly turned southwest, went into Mexico, and that was the end of it. And I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. But really, the moment was 1983. And I was a freshman in high school. It was my first day of high school. And the principal came on the speaker and said, we are under a hurricane. Watch. A storm is formed in the Gulf. And that was Alicia, uh -huh. uh, which started as just a little area of thunderstorms south of New Orleans. Uh, and within 48 to 72 hours was a Category 3 making landfall on Galveston Island. And I can remember the entire night. Of course, the storm hit in the night, right, Brian? Right. Uh, it was in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, yeah. <laughs> Seems like that happened a lot. Um, and I can remember sitting up the entire night uh, listening to the all-news radio station. Uh, I think it was KTRH at the time. And uh, we had several tornadoes in our neighborhood. I was well inland. I didn't live uh, at the coast. And afterwards, you know, that was the first hurricane uh, to pass directly over the Houston area since, I think, the 1940s. And 1943. With, like, yeah, 1943. We ended up with two or three feet of glass deep in downtown Houston because of all this loose gravel uh, that was on top of these high-rises that just became this enormous projectile throughout uh, all of the high-rises downtown and, of course, all the damage that was down on Galveston Island and various other spots. So that, by far, that was the moment. Uh, that storm in 1983. Yeah, and that was one of the slowest hurricane seasons uh, ever, 1983. All right, David, we're going to let you go. Thanks so much. Good to hear your voice. Uh, keep New Orleans safe. Will do, and uh, good luck to you and Luke, and nice being with you today. All Thank right. you, David. All right, take care. Uh, yeah, so that was, that was uh, Katrina was so traumatic for so many people. I mean, it, it's almost a cliché to talk about that. You know, I, I, I wrote, uh, comparing Katrina to Andrew, that after Andrew, I thought I would never see in the United States so much pain and suffering among American citizens in the United States. Uh, um, and I said that in 1992. Mm. And then Katrina came along. So and, and it was, you know, so many of the scenes were similar, but it was worse. And, I, and you can make a case that Maria was another case that was worse, uh, you know, in Puerto Rico uh, this past year. 
but but uh, you know the the inability, the just natural innate inability of people that don't have means to deal with these extraordinary disasters uh, continues, you know, to, to come to the fore when we get these extraordinary disasters. They don't come along very often, thankfully. Thankfully, Irma was not an extraordinary disaster except in a very narrow part of the Florida Keys. So, uh, you know, it didn't happen, thankfully. Uh, but on occasion, the, these things do. Harvey, that was an extraordinary disaster, and we, we really do not have a, uh, an ability to deal with that. I remember the response being just terrible with Katrina. What happened there? Well, it was a combination of things. Uh, Michael Brown, who the president called Brownie, if you remember, good job, Brownie, he said, and uh, that got the president in trouble and, and made Michael Brown look like, you know, uh, negatively uh, is the best way uh, to put it. But in fairness to Michael Brown, what had happened was he was running an agency that was uh, kind of neutered by what they did with the government after 9-11. FEMA? Well, because what they did is they created the Department of Homeland Security and put FEMA into it. Mm. But the goal really was to defend the country against terrorism. It wasn't to to deal with natural disasters anymore. So before 9-11, FEMA was a standalone agency. The head of FEMA was a, a cabinet member. James Lee Witt in the, in the Clinton administration was actually at a cabinet level in the administration. And then when 9-11 happened and the focus of the government went to anti-terrorism, FEMA became something of an afterthought and pieces of it were taken away and put into the anti-terrorism efforts of the Department of Homeland Security, which was new, which was created post 9-11. So the FEMA that Michael Brown was trying to run, whether Michael Brown was the right person to be running FEMA or not, it's a whole other question. But but the FEMA that he was trying to run just had, did not have the capabilities uh, to respond to that disaster. And a guy named Michael Chertoff, who was the, the head of the Department of Homeland Security, the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, uh, was on 60 Minutes in a piece well after the storm saying he wasn't really aware that the levees had failed and all this had happened until after the fact. So th the thing was that they had not designed that huge federal department to deal with disasters, and they had to kind of design it on the fly, and they ended up uh, putting a Coast Guard general in charge to – you know, uh, get the troops moving and and uh, deal with it. But all that was very ad hoc. And, and so so that's what happened. Uh, you know, and, and the government learned a lot from it. And FEMA became a a much, much better agency under the Obama administration, continues today to be a much better agency. Uh, last year, it was taxed beyond its limits by Harvey Irma and and so didn't have much left or didn't have enough left, let me put it that way. Had a lot left, but didn't have enough left for disaster on the scale of uh, Maria. So as we look back on this, uh, on Hurricane Katrina, you know, is it safe to say that it wasn't a worst case scenario or a worst case storm? It was kind of a worst case scenario, but more because man-made issues 
the issues with the levee system. Maybe people, um, you know, we, we see it, you know, all along the coast, high populations along the coast in very vulnerable areas. But the big one being the man-made issues that failed the city. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that, that it's uh, accurate to say that Katrina was an engineering disaster, not uh, so much in, in New Orleans, I mean. Now, in Mississippi, it was near a worst-case sure. situation in Mississippi, in southern Mississippi. It was horrendous in southern Mississippi. They, they don't get anywhere near the credit for what they went through in southern Mississippi to deal with Katrina. But in New Orleans, it was it was fundamentally an engineering disaster because the flood wells did not operate uh, to spec. There was a flaw in how they were mounted in the ground, so they failed at the bottom, and they they— tilted over, and and that's what caused the disaster on the scale uh, that it was. Let me remind you uh, that the podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big, visit Miccosukee.com, discover the winner in you, and find out what our friends of the Miccosukee Tribe are uh, up to, and we really appreciate uh, their support for our uh, podcast. So uh, I had a thoughtful email from a, uh, a listener asking about how social media affects weather communications, uh, to paraphrase what he said. And uh, it's a great idea to talk about that, and we will do that. But I, I just wanted to recognize that uh, we had gotten that. And if you have any uh, anything you would like to communicate with us, uh, email it to us at uh, weatherpod at wplg.com. Uh, I did want to make mention uh, that 69 years ago yesterday, there was a... Uh, a uh, hurricane that 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 was a concern in Miami, uh, but th- then uh, 69 years ago, yesterday was a concern in Miami because they thought it was coming to Miami, but it veered to the north and it ended up hitting West Palm Beach as a 130 mile an hour category four hurricane, and the damage was from Fort Lauderdale to the north. So uh, that was a crazy period from 1945. A category four hurricane hit Miami Dade County. 47, Category 4 hurricane hit Broward County. 1948, Category 4 hurricane hit Monroe County. 49, Palm Beach County. And 50 back to Miami-Dade Miami County was 1950. So 1950 was the first one that had these official names. So the rest of them were just by year. So was that King in 50? King, King was 1950, was the yeah. one that came from the south, right, and came right over uh, downtown Miami, a very, very small hurricane, only affected half the county, only really what? affected the eastern half of Miami-Dade County uh, back then, Dade County, moving from wow. south to north. Yeah, it was amazing. And up into Broward, too, but it went kind of to the western part of Broward County, kind of an angle. Wow, that's remarkable. It was a very, very uh, small storm. All right, well, that's our uh, podcast for August 29th, 2018, podcast uh, number 11. And we hope you'll be in touch at weatherpod at WPLG.com. A reminder once again that uh, the Miccosukee Tribe supports our podcast. And we're sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big, and visit Miccosukee.com to discover the winner in you. I'm Brian Norcross, along with Luke Doris at the WPLG Local 10 Podcast Studio in Miami. Thanks for tuning in, punching us up, and we'll see you again next week.